5: Brought to you by the Ad Council. This is
6: Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. As we roll into what I call the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to uh, turn things a little bit more serious than uh, the earlier guests on the show. This is uh, um, about a uh, new book, a father's memoir that breaks the code of silence about his family's struggle to raise a deeply traumatized Russian orphan and uh, the book is called Raising a Thief. It's written by Paul Podolsky who joins me now by phone. Paul welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Paul let me let me just start right right at the very beginning Um, why adopt a Russian orphan?
7: Ah, The uh Ah, uh, we had a family connection to Russia. I uh, was born in the United States, raised in Washington D.C., but when I graduated college, the Soviet Union was just collapsing, and I went over there and worked for a couple of years as a journalist. And I met my wife there, who was born in Siberia, and met her in Moscow at our biological sub. Our daughter Sonia's older brother, Sonia's one we wrote about in the book, was born in Russia. And so when we decided to adopt, Russia seemed like a natural place to go.
6: That's that's interesting. I, I didn't I, I rarely think of people being born in Siberia. I think of that as some place people get sent to. Yes. And yes, and of kind course. of the oh. same thing about Washington D C, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> My
7: yeah, Yes. Both both have that aspect to it. My uh, wife who's just had an extraordinary journey and is obviously a, a part of the, the memoir, Raising a Thief, uh, was born literally like Abraham Lincoln in a long cabin in um, Siberia and made her way through the circuitous, circuitous path all the way to Moscow, which is where I met her. And in DC, my father was a scientist. He worked for the NIH and we lived in Washington. That's how we ended up there.
6: Ah. Well, Paul, you and uh, and your wife um, have a child um, of your own, and then you wanted a second child and decided to adopt. And uh, because of uh, your wife's connection to Russia, you or or at least that played a role in your decision to adopt a Russian orphan. What, what is involved with that kind of an adoption, Paul? Um, you know, how are, are you able to do much research ahead of time? Uh, how, how, does, how does that all play out?
7: It's a, it's a good question. So first of all, to obviously take a child from one home to another is an extraordinarily delicate, important decision, and there are tons of regulations involved. So to, uh, from, from our side, we had to get approved by uh, a series of agencies, we are living in Massachusetts at the time, to be legally allowed to adopt a child. Uh, and then you go through a protracted sort of matching process uh, to find somebody, and that whole thing took years. Uh, and then shortly after 9-11, uh, the whole story unfolds over 20 years, we got a video uh, in the mail of this uh, beautiful uh, young uh, child. And we shared it with a physician who was helping us in Boston. She said, oh, you're so fortunate to be able to get some, she looked so healthy on the video. And then we went over there and then you have to, the Russians have to inspect all the paperwork to okay the child. We go through a legal process, go to a court, and that's how it happens. We were our daughter's fourth home. She had been uh, born to her biological mother, starved by the biological mother, almost to death, then transferred to a hospital where she regained weight and the mother was stripped of her rights of maternity due to abusive behavior. And then from there, she went to an orphanage, which is where we met her when she was 16 16 months old, so four homes before she got to us.
6: And and then... um and and her name is Sonia, she yes. was um, 16 months old when you adopted her. When did you notice that she had the trauma that led to some of the bad behaviors you talk about in the book?
7: Right. Um, the uh, Right away, but we didn't know what we were looking at, which is one of the reasons why I wrote the book, to try to raise awareness about this i 'm very uh, uh, pro adoption, but I feel like what we went through perhaps some of the, the more difficult things could have been avoided if we had been educated first, and perhaps some of the caregivers you know physicians psychologists etc knew about what was going on as well. We knew our daughter's history before we adopted her, but believed that The child's not going to remember this, and of course our daughter doesn't, and if we bring her into a loving home, she already had an older brother who we were raising and he was doing well, well, then she'll blossom. We were wrong, and the research that we subsequently found indicates that both the timing of when an injury happens to a child and the severity of it are highly predictive for how consequential it can be which was counterintuitive to me, but this is very backed up by you know, pioneering psychiatrists like John Bowlby, um, or more contemporary ones like Bruce Perry at the uh, operates out of the Houston Child Trauma Center. So uh, we began to see things, to answer your question, right away, but we didn't know what to make of them. She ran away from us. She would be very controlling with, uh, for instance, refusing to drink. If she did eat, she would eat to the point of uh, overeating so much that she would actually uh, vomit. The minute she began to talk, she began to lie. She also began to steal. Uh, She exposed herself to uh, neighborhood kids. Now, why would a kid do all these things? The answer is control. What happens is these kids get so rattled when they're very small that they – uh, their brain gets rewired such that they have their very distrust, they, they, very low levels of trust in the outside world, and they try to control everything that they can. What can a very small child control? Well, what they eat. They know that there is, you know, uh, such a thing as privates, and you're not, supposed to sh- you're not supposed to display that, and so they do. That's breaking a taboo. It creates drama, but it puts them in control. Lying and stealing and manipulating does as well. Now, I will say that all, many kids lie and steal. The thing that distinguishes these kids with the disorder that my daughter ultimately was diagnosed with is both the frequency of it, it's constant, and that they don't have other ways of interacting with the world. And so for a, a parent, it's incredibly humbling to run into this because you think you've got your one kid and you're like, I'm a pretty good dad. Well, then you try all those dating techniques on kin number two that you did on kin number one, and they fail utterly. And so that's when we really began having a lot of questions and asking for tons of help. And it took us a long time. It wasn't until our daughter was nine before we got a proper diagnosis of the condition she has, which is called reactive attachment disorder.
6: And and that um, that disorder, reactive attachment disorder, Um, is there are not a lot of people who know about that, even in the medical world, and are uh, equipped to diagnose it and and recommend, I I don't know, some way of uh, addressing the behaviors.
7: Yes, I I think that it's not as well known. And again, one idea of writing the book was to try to make it more commonly understood, but write it, in a narrative with characters that brought you in as opposed to very thick medical terminology. I think that it's possible that awareness of this can grow a lot. In the same way when I was growing up, it wasn't that common to talk of people getting depressed and needing help. Or maybe when my son was growing up, Asperger's and autism was becoming more common language. Now it's widespread. And I think to people's benefit, they understand that just like if you break an arm, you go see a doctor, people understand that there's certain life changes that could lead to depression and somebody might need to go see a mental health professional. Now that's commonly understood. Attachment, you're right, is not as well understood and I think it needs to be because it isn't just Russian orphans that have this. It's basically any child that has a disruption to early caregiver relationships can develop this disorder. So children who, very young children who are losing parents due to COVID, protracted military deployment, poverty, these are all things that can trigger the types of reactions that um, our daughter had, um, the disproportionate amount of people in the criminal justice system who have had these types of backgrounds. So I do think it's widespread, but you're right, it's not that easy to diagnose and not that commonly diagnosed.
6: How long did you try just uh, doing good dad things before you sought professional help?
7: This, this is uh, constantly, and I still try to do that. that I'll tell you as we get to it, that the story actually brought, after our daughter cut off contact with us when she became an adult at 18, the story actually has brought her back into contact with us, writing it, publishing it, And I still try to do dad things with her, but I did everything, you're right, Tom, I could imagine to try to make her want to trust me and not lie and manipulate to me. So camping and surfing and skiing and bike riding and soccer playing and swimming, anything that I could do. Um, My wife was smarter at this than me. And that is something else that I talk about in the, the story. Part of it is about the trauma with our daughter, but part of it is also me really needing to pick up my game as a father. Uh, my wife had an instinct that something was wrong, we began to look for professionals to help us, and was initially rebuffed by quite a number of them before herself on the Internet. Late at night, after a particularly bad episode, just googling and googling and googling, you know, lying, orphan, trust, etc came up with this word "attachment," and used that to find a therapist in our state of Connecticut who specialized in that. That ultimately led to the diagnosis. So my wife began getting concerned at two or three when my daughter was two or three. I was initially dismissive of those concerns, thinking that she was overreacting which of course only compounded the difficulties at home because my wife had an instinct and she wasn't getting the support for her, from her husband. And this is actually also common in these cases. Many of these kids, and there's, you know, there's different support groups on, the, on, on Facebook, etc. there's thousands and thousands of families wrestling with this. Um, it's common that these kids will target the most primary caregiver in this case, my wife, with the nastiest behavior and then sometimes try to charm the other person, which is what happens a little bit in our case, and it creates a real fracturing of the family. And so uh, I really needed to, in this process, improve my fathering skills and listen to my wife better, which I gradually (laughs) learned how to do better, but it took me longer than it should have.
6: Well, I think that that happens to a lot of husbands, Paul. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I I don't think that's that uncommon. Uh, Paul, I have a break here in about a minute, and I want to talk some more about this and about the timeline. Um, Can you stick around for a few minutes, and and we'll dig down some more? Absolutely. Okay, my my guest is uh, journalist Paul Podolsky. He is the author of a memoir, that is uh, simply called Raising a Thief. And we'll have uh, more with him after we take a short break. If you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 FM, our voices radio in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze in a few words or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com we have some messages uh, as well, so don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. We'll have uh, more of my conversation with um, Paul Podolsky, author of Raising a Thief, uh, right, right after this short break, so stay tuned. Hello,
8: darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us, call us at 810 339 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go.
5: Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490.
4: The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. How do you
0: do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope back once again to tell you it's better to have Pepsodent flowing over your teeth now than to have water running under your bridge later.
3: The time Summer
2: Program.com
6: Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. And welcome back, everybody. I'm talking with author Paul Podolsky about his memoir, "Raising a Thief." Paul, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around.: Thank you. Uh, Paul just before the break we were talking a little bit about uh, how your your wife started uh, getting a sense that your adopted uh, daughter Sonya a Russian orphan um, at age two or three was uh, something wasn't right and and you were a little dismissive when when did you come around and realize that maybe it was time to turn to professional help
7: um, we were on a uh, trip together, my wife and I, away from the kids. We'd put our daughter in a special camp uh, that was supposed to specialize in, in, in challenging kids. And we took a one-week vacation together, uh, my wife and I. And as we were walking, when it was coming time to go back home, my wife just burst into tears and said, I can't take it anymore. I can't take it anymore. We need to do something about her. And a psychologist who we were seeing had said that if all parenting and therapy, etc., were failing, the next level of care for a kid like this was something called residential treatment. I had no idea what residential treatment was, but it's basically a special facility, a school combined with mental health that provides 24-7 supervision for a kid. And I was shocked. That a kid this little could need it
6: now but when you say this little how old was sonya at that time
7: nine years old okay. nine years old okay and it was a combination of my wife just weeping and saying she was at the end of her rope and the psychologist suggesting it that i said okay let's you know we have really got a massive challenge here as a family and then when we took her to it took a it was hard to find this place it was in new mexico when we took her there It was the first time that I really was convinced that neither my wife or I were inventing this because there were a bunch of other girls very, very similar to our daughter there with similar backgrounds. And in fact, when we were trying to get her admitted there, they said, what's the case story? And we said, you know, early childhood trauma, starvation, lying, stealing, explosive. They said, oh, she's classic. And I was like, she's classic. It was the first time that I didn't feel... Completely alone, and then once we got there, you know, they have a team of very you know well-credentialed, fancy people. And that was where they put the formal diagnosis on her.
6: And when that, uh, when that, well, uh, before the before the diagnosis, um, she had all of these these behaviors—the lying, the stealing, and all that. But was she was she violent at all? Was she civilized? Was you know could you? interact with her
7: she she was not violent and we we're very fortunate that some of these kids can be violent and there's even even though it's it's really horrifying to say there are cases of Russian adoptees who have murdered uh, their adoptive parents so our daughter doesn't have any of that and that we were very very um, fortunate that what would happen was a constant it was constant manipulation that we were dealing with you know and, and as she's gotten older she's told us that we only saw part of it she stole from us every single day when she went to the local swim practice she would fade needing to go to the restroom the swim coach wasn't a trained trauma specialist and so she would break swim practice go there and rob all the girls and her swim team uh so she began stealing medicine doing things in the middle of the night so Uh, There wasn't violence, but it really turns your whole life upside down because at the essence of relationships is trust. You have to have a level of trust. And if somebody is, their sole goal is to lie and manipulate all the time, even a very small child, and this is, I was so humbled by this, I wouldn't have believed it unless I lived through it. Your whole life sort of grinds to a halt. And that's the situation that we are in. Um, so no violence for pretty much everything else.
6: And and in when episodes would happen like her sneaking out of swim practice and then robbing all the girls, I mean, this isn't exactly like a Sherlock Holmes mystery. I mean, she must have been caught, and, and people knew she was doing this. Um, what kind of outside... Uh, uh, I, I'm not even sure what the um, re- reactions Respond. were there. Yeah, response.
7: Uh, it's interesting, uh, generally dismissive. In other words, tried to brush over it. Um, and th- there's a couple of things. First thing is is that when we caught our daughter red-handed, she had absolutely no conscience, none. If you finally caught her, let me say, we know we, know, we saw you stealing there she'd just look at you in the eye and she'd go, so what? And that's a little bit freaky to live through actually, as a parent, because you know, normally, if you catch a kid doing something, our older one, if he did something bad, and you caught him,
6: there's some guilt, or saying, some I'm shame. sorry,
7: I want to make exactly nothing with her, nothing, even when she was a very small child. I remember this, I described this in the book, she had done, uh, you know, something she wasn't supposed to do. And I said that this is maybe when she was three or four, and I said, maybe four, and I said, well, I'm going to take, you know, your favorite stuffy away from you for uh, whatever, an hour or something like that as a, as a consequence. And she looked at me squarely in the aisle. This is a very little child. And she said, I never liked it anyway. <laughs> and it's really kind of brilliant because the parenting is all about it. Th- and she was very ingenious about flipping it right away and try to take the leverage back. I never like that stuffy anyways. So to answer your question, when she got caught um, about it, and you have to imagine she's a nine-year-old, blonde, blue-eyed girl, very beautiful, and she would say, I didn't do it. And most people have a hard time believing that a girl that age is pathologically lying to them. And so they would say, oh, kids steal or maybe she had a difficult day. They would generally dismiss it. And it was really my wife who was leading the charge saying, "Uh uh-uh, this is real. And when we went to our school, our local public school, and asked for help with some of the behavioral issues, they were dismissive too. And that was another goal of writing this book is to try to raise awareness. Like when you see these things, they're real and you want to act early. And the earlier, the more aggressive the intervention, the more likely there is of uh, seeing some success.
6: Now, I don't, I, I, don't want to give out any spoiler alerts, but uh, you know, is there any light at the end of the tunnel for a, a person who's been damaged that badly?
7: I think there is, and so first is is that if we got an accurate diagnosis early on, I think that Marina and I, Marina's my wife we would have changed our parenting right when we adopted her, that could have softened the conditions. And so I think for parents that have a kid like this, or, you know, or listening or know somebody who suspects, I think getting the right help around you as early as possible. So you can begin to, and it depends on the specifics of the kid, you can begin to employ. And, uh, in our case, our daughter was pretty severe. At 18, which is where the book ends, she cut off all contact with us. Um, I wrote this book and began talking about it on social media, and she was tracking me on social media. The (laughs) book is dedicated to her. Shortly before it was published, she reached out to me and said, you know, could I read it? And I said, of course you could. I'd love you to read it. I mailed her a galley, and she read it. She sent her every chapter. And it was the first time she understood our perspective. And we've since uh resumed contact and now we, you know, we're speaking weekly and I'm trying to help her and my wife is to get on her feet. She had a rough couple of years. Uh She's been, you know, begging for money. She got involved with drugs and alcohol. She committed a felony, which she pleaded guilty to, but it does seem like through the of Um, her own will, resuming contact with us. She now has a job. Uh, She has a place stable that she's living. She seems to be drug and alcohol-free. It looks like she's not going to get prison time, just probation. So there is some sign. And it really, another thing that I think I wanted to communicate with the book is, boy, if you have a challenging kid, this is more than a marathon. It's two or three or four marathons. Try to help a kid like that. And what's been gratifying in writing the book is I describe our specific journey with attachment disorder, but many, many families have a super challenging family member in them. And I've had readers from all over the spectrum reach out to me and say, well, I didn't have a sister like that, but, you know, my brother uh, has battled uh, schizophrenia his whole life. Or I have a sister who is severely autistic, or I had a parent who was addicted to drugs and these types of family dynamics that are all out there and a little bit under the surface because I don't think that people want to advertise it and my thought was listen we had a very messy family life but it's real it's true we did the best we can and by sharing that story really letting other people let down their guard a little bit and say hey this is where our story was really kind of messy
6: how did all of this impact um, Sasha your son. Um great question.
7: It growing up, the two of them were really uh are quite different and opposites complemented one another. Our son is he's in technology. Uh he is uh he's twenty six now. He's super analytical, not the least bit manipulative and uh very intellectual with with he probably struggles a little bit more with EQ, emotional intelligence. Our daughter's the exact opposite. She can read a person like the best poker player and manipulate them if she needs to. Uh, because he wasn't an authority figure or a primary caregiver, generally, not exclusively, but generally she didn't target him and the two of them got along quite well. well how I've seen it affect him is now that he's an adult, having experienced this, he is really quite cautious uh, in his uh, personal relationships, particularly with women, like with girlfriends, any sign of drama, any complication, he's out of there in a second, because he experienced a lot of it growing up, and he does not want any more of it, to the degree that I suspect, listen, he's, a, he's an adult now, he's got to navigate it, I suspect that there's a lot of false positives, that the, the, the person he's on a date with does something that's probably very minor, and he reads it as major, but I'd say that's how it's affected him, which is understandable, he's sure. cautious. He's seen how complicated this can be, and I have too. Um, I think that some adoption advocates might be a little bit concerned, for instance, about this book, because it says, hey, listen, adoption can be a pretty tough journey. But again, I would rather have these stories out there and us just knowing the facts and deciding for ourselves than trying to uh, either make it darker or making it too light, just trying to be accurate.
6: Was was there ever a period of time for uh, Sasha where, where he tried to, um, I don't know, maybe defend Sonia or cover for her?
7: Not really, because he could see what she was doing. When she did tricky stuff, it was really obvious. You know, he, she, uh, and when she did target him, of course he felt that he had asthma and was one time really having trouble breathing and she threw out his, you know, his medicine. So she experienced, he experienced with this. So he wasn't so much defending her. I would say that the defense was more me, uh, because she would not be as hard on me as she was on my wife. And mm-hmm. I would say to my wife, one of the stupidest things you can say is, is calm down. You're overreacting, things like that. Just so silly. Uh, and it really took a great therapist at the residential treatment program that we had her out in New Mexico, who very appropriately called me out on that. And once he really made a point of that and then showed me the subtle ways I was doing it, uh, I gradually learned my lesson.
6: And and so how long was she at that special school? From what age to what age?
7: She was at that special school for two years, from nine to eleven. And uh, then we brought her home and we had so much hope that things were going to improve with her, that, you know, our family had been trained about raising a traumatized kid. She'd gotten a lot of therapy. We brought her back and she stayed home for a couple more years. And then the, ther- then the, the bad behaviors came back. And then we sent her away to uh, another program for much of her high school. And we would visit her, send her, and work with her, but, our concern was, frankly, keeping her safe because the the older she got, the more extreme the behaviors got. We found her, we, we told her, listen, you're not going to have, when she was home, you're not going to have any rights to privacy We're on Facebook or whatever. We got to read this stuff to keep you safe. She began talking with random older men, uh, really kind of scary stuff that we felt like could lead to disaster for her. And we didn't have, Uh, uh, alarms at our house in the middle of the night in case we went out and it was coming to that and so we felt we could no longer keep her safe we moved her back into a more restrictive school for older kids high school age kids Uh, and that's where she spent the latter part of her high school and i think that it didn't work in the sense of quote unquote curing her but i do think it worked in the sense of keeping her safe As everybody knows, child's brains are still developing very rapidly, and what we were trying to do was delay as long as possible the period of time where any alcohol or drugs would get into her system because she already was dealing with a sort of traumatized brain. We didn't want more of that, and it was successful in that regard. She didn't really start getting into the alcohol or drugs until she was 18. Of course, I wish she hadn't had it at all.
6: Is there a cure for reactive attachment disorder, or is it just a lifetime of management?
7: More a lifetime of management. I think the best cure is self awareness. And there are some wonderful, wonderful stories that are out there of kids who have gone through this. And through it, ultimately, the cure needs to come from the person themselves. They need to say, listen, I have a way of looking at the world that is not productive for me or others. I need to change. Now they can need a lot of help. They can need the support of family, they could need uh, a therapist, etc, a coach uh, these types of things to help create a lattice around them. but the will to change needs to must come from that person. And there are cases of people who have had this been really quite scary when they were little kids, and have, for instance, turned into mental health counselors and transformed many people's lives, uh, in the process Can turn a quarter, but it is a struggle realizing, um, what's at stake. And I think the hopeful thing for me is, is there are little glimmers now that that sort of after hitting rock bottom, our daughter with these two years that she was sort of her own seems to be realizing what's, uh, involved. Many of these kids, Uh, Reactive attachment disorder is, uh, I'm not a psychiatrist, but this is what the mental health people told me, it's a childhood disorder, it'll turn into adult something called borderline personality disorder, which uh, probably maybe some listeners are familiar with, but these are people in your life you might have met, some of them who love you one day and then hate you the next, it's very sort of unstable.
6: Did you and your wife, uh, Marina, or I guess I want to ask this differently, um, was there ever a time when you and your wife, Marina, um, Paul, ever just wanted to give up? <laughs> and why um, didn't you?
7: Yeah. the uh, You mean give up on Sonia or give up on each other? No, or, give up or on
6: Sonia like, and, and send her back to the Daisy we, Hill we, puppy farm. Yeah, we didn't.
7: And I think that this is, this is a, again, this is something that I wouldn't have believed unless I'd experienced it. Probably many parents know that first transformative day when they become a parent. I remember it crystal clear when our son was born. I describe it in the book as all of a sudden I had like a second tracking beacon out there. There was my wife and then all of a sudden my son. And I was thinking about them at all times. When I adopted our daughter, Sonia, the exact same thing happened. The minute it was like, this is your daughter, take care of her, which is what they said at the, at the Russian orphanage. At, from that moment on, I was like, she is my responsibility. I want to father her as best I can. That never waned. And I also really, I do not discriminate between the biological child and the adopted. It never waned whatsoever. My question only was tactics. What tactics? to use because sort of plan A, B, C, and D didn't work. And uh, it was finding the right tactics to be a good father to her. So no, I didn't ever feel like uh, I wanted to give up. What I was struggling for is what the right thing to do was to teach her the skills, that the values that every father, I think, has trying to teach his daughter.
6: When did you know that this needed to be a book
7: huh. um, uh, very gradually I was um, uh, traveling a lot for a job I was on I was started off as a reporter that I worked on Wall Street for uh, over 20 years and as part of that I had a lot of travel to Asia which as any of your listeners know who's been, <laughs> is a long long trip And I was spending all these times on these airplanes and then ruminating about this challenge we'd gone through. And I just started writing. And uh, initially, the stuff that I wrote, frankly, was really terrible. Um, (laughs) And I just revised it. And I revised it. And I would show it to people that are in my circle until I began getting a reaction. So I've heard that comedians try out their material at sort of low level. This is not comic, as you said, but they try out their material at clubs and see what the audience reaction. I just started doing that, and I was working full-time six days a week, and then I was writing on weekends, nights, uh, vacations, constantly writing and revising and writing and revising until I began to uh, get a story out of it. That is, for anybody that is trying to write a book, that's not the right way to write a book. Don't use my technique. The right thing to do is to come up with a proposal and an outline and then follow the outline. And on the next book that I'm finishing right now, that's what I did. But this first book, Tom, I just began writing. It just felt like it had to come out. And well, this one had to be kind of tough. Fiction.
6: This one had to be kind of tough, Paul, because it would have been so personal.
7: Yes. It was very tough to get it right. And also, um, memoir is a very specific form. I, of, of, of writing. I read one book about memoirs and they said a memoir can never be a memoir. In other words, you're not really the center of it, the author. You're participating in it but you really have to make, to make a story that appeals to people. We're all so busy. I felt like if I didn't write a story that people could not put down, nobody would read it. And so to get that, you really have to touch those themes that I think touch all of us. Many people are parents. Many people have difficult things in their lives. A lot of people are interested in Russia. There's a lot of dads struggling to be a good dad. And so you, ha- I really had to land those themes. And it is personal, but you really have to make it in a way that I think speaks to broader common concerns.
6: What's the next book? Uh,
7: for somebody who wants to pick it up, the next book is not a memoir. <laughs> uh, enough, uh, enough of that. I need to take a break. The next book is a fiction book that is um, a little bit of a thriller, but it takes readers into the world that I was in for many years, which is um, finance, intrigue, Russia, China, those types of things.
6: Gotcha. Well, Paul, we're we're just about out of time. Um, do you have a website?
7: Yes. So uh, the book is available on Amazon, on Apple, on Barnes & Noble. You can order it from your local bookstore. They can, I know independent bookstores have it. And then I have a website, Paul Podolsky. It's P-O-D dog, O-L-S-K-Y dot com. Uh, there's also a podcast there called Things I Didn't Learn in School that is a lot of experts that bolster awareness of this. So psychologists, psychiatrists, teachers, Paul. lawyers...
6: Paul, I have to yeah. interrupt. We've got a break, Can you stick around so we got can it. wrap it up. Hey, <laughs> all right, this we'll be right is back.
7: The and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now.
4: The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. Take the following everyday steps to help avoid the spread of all respiratory viruses. Wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue. Throw the tissue away and then wash your hands. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips,
8: Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Briggs. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us, at 810 339 or contact us on Facebook or Twitter. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner program where to go.
6: Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, my guest this hour is the author of a uh, memoir called Raising a Thief. His name is Paul Podolsky. Paul, thanks for sticking around so we could uh, wrap things up properly. We kind of got crashed into a break there.
7: Sure. Thank you. Um, I was just going to, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for your interest in the book. I was just going to say that on the web, the, the book's available easily, the website also has a podcast that's related to the book. The first podcast on there is actually an interview with my daughter herself, the subject of the book, what she thought about it. And many, many people have found, seemed, based on the stats, seem to have found this podcast helpful. So that's it's free. That's there, too.
6: Um, there were just a couple of things that that I wanted to ask real quickly before, uh, sure. before we sign off, Paul. One is uh, how did you come up with the title Raising a Thief? Was... Uh, Raising a uh, Daughter with Reactive Attachment Disorder Too Dull?
7: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's also a reference. It's a reference. The very first guy that studied this thing put out this amazing book called 44 Juvenile Thieves Uh. um, based on his research about kids in the 1930s. So it's a reference to that. And, you know, it's a reference to things getting stolen a little bit. So Sonia's childhood and then... I didn't know about her being having committed a felony until after I made the book.
6: Um, and and the other thing, Paul, is there weren't, because this is, is kind of rare, or at least being diagnosed is a little bit rare, um, there really weren't any support groups or anything for you and your wife.
7: At the time, that's right. Now there are more. You can find reactive attachment disorder support groups uh, on Facebook and then there's therapeutic communities. So I think awareness of it is growing in a good way.
6: Well, Paul, thank you so much for uh, sharing your time and your story with me this morning.
7: Thank you so much.
6: All right. Take care. Best of luck with the book. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you so much. Bye-bye. That was Paul Podolsky, author of Raising a Thief, a father's memoir breaking the code of silence about his family's struggle to raise a deeply traumatized Russian orphan. We'll have, uh, well, we'll wrap things up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Straight ahead. That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program, but what a uh, what a good one. Boy, it went flying by. Kind of serious this last hour with uh, journalist Paul Podolsky, uh, <coughs> who has uh, written a new memoir called Raising a Thief about uh, his family's struggle to raise a deeply traumatized Russian orphan. Of course, uh, then earlier, um, a lot of fun for me, and I hope it was for you, too, to... Um, Never before told stories from the world's most loved detective and certainly one of my favorite literary characters of all time, Sherlock Holmes, is uh, the subject of a, uh, well, is, is the, the purpose of a new book that is called The Book of Extraordinary New Sherlock Holmes Stories by a variety of authors, all put together by uh, my guest from the uh, second hour of our three hour tour today. Uh, Maxim Jakubowski, calling in or uh, joining me by phone from uh, the UK, and of course uh, we started the show out this morning with the the um, basically the creator of uh, Comedy Central, who has uh, written a memoir, Constant Comedy: How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. He is a former media executive uh, known for creating, building, and managing successful cable television channels. Art Bell, who was working at HBO when he pitched the original idea of a 24-hour comedy network, which became Comedy Central. Anyway, fun show today. It's going to be a fun one tomorrow. It's an encore from, uh, from January 13th, a Friday the 13th special from 2017. On tomorrow's edition, that's Smoke and George Winters in the background tickling the ivories. That lets me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room, so that's what I'm going to do. Good night, everybody.
0: The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions.